Although it might superficially seem as if the names of each parasha, each weekly Torah portion, are just mechanically extracted from the first few words of the respective parashiot, the name of each parasha actually expresses the essence of what that weekly section of our Torah is all about. Parashat Chayesara, which literally means the life of Sarah, might at first seem like a strange name for this week's parasha, especially given the fact that it begins with Sarah's death and burial, but then moves on to other topics. But if we look at the three major stories that take place in this parasha, we can see manifestations of Sarah's legacy having a major influence on events. Everything that takes place in Parshat Chai Sarah should be understood as the direct result of Sarah's lasting influence over Avraham, and as crucial victories she won after her death, through which she was able to guide her family in the direction that she understood to be best for its development into the nation of Israel. The first of Sarah's victories is that Hebron essentially became the main location of her family's future development. Avraham had, until Sarah's death, been more inclined to live in Be'er Sheva, as a spiritual leader within the Philistine kingdom ruled by Avimelech. Avraham wasn't especially interested in dealing with matters of statecraft, but wanted to spread his teachings of ethical panentheism and bring people close to the Creator. That's what excited him. That's where he felt his soul fully being expressed. So it's understandable that he might have preferred a situation in which powerful kingdoms adopted his spiritual teachings. This was essentially the deal that Avimelech offered him. The Philistine king saw Avraham as an important figure and basically gave him an honored place as a spiritual leader within his realm of influence. But this required Avraham to accept the reality of Avimelech having political sovereignty over parts of the land of Israel. Sarah rejected this orientation because she understood that the Hebrews could only fulfill our historic mission as a sovereign nation that deals with and applies our spiritual values to all areas of national life. For this reason, Sarah believed that the family should live in Hebron, which required Avraham to hold and manage sovereign territory. The family had previously lived in Hebron, but had moved after the destruction of Stom, which had been directly east of Hebron, created a significant decrease in travelers for Avraham to engage and teach. So through her death in Hebron, Sarah forced Avraham to return the family back to that city. Sarah's second major victory was Avraham's decision to find a Hebrew wife for Yitzchak from among their relatives. Because Avraham inclined towards universalism and had previously regarded his marriage to the Egyptian princess Hagar as a way to influence Egyptian civilization with his teachings, he might have seen value in Yitzchak marrying a woman from another dominant nation. But Sarah's nationalist orientation ultimately won out, and following her lead, Avraham took steps to ensure that his successor would only marry an ethnic Hebrew. The story of Eliezer traveling to Aram to find a bride for Yitzchak, which is the central focus of this parasha, is the result of Avraham fully adopting Sarah's path. And Sarah's third victory can be found at the end of the parasha in the story of Avraham's children from Keturah, who our sages teach us to have actually been Hagar. While it was proper for Avraham to take another wife for himself after Sarah's death, it's also clear that Avraham understood by this point that only Sarah's son Yitzchak could be his heir and successor. 
We see this expressed in Avraham's decision to send Keturah's sons to the east. He gave them gifts, but didn't make them his heirs. Avraham at this point seemed able to utilize Sarah's attribute of Gevurah in order to create appropriate boundaries for the expression of his chesed. In any case, even after Sarah left our world, her opinions and desires continued to influence Avraham's decisions, which is of course a very powerful testament to the relationship they shared. This parasha also features a transition from the leadership of Avraham to the leadership of Yitzchak in building the family and future nation of Israel. We see this very clearly in the fact that when the servant Eliezer returned from his mission, he reported not to Avraham who had sent him, but to Yitzchak. Avraham had to a certain extent retired, and Yitzchak was now essentially head of the family. Yitzchak's position as leader and public face of the Hebrew message to mankind likely came with challenges. Avraham had essentially been a self-made man who underwent a major personal transformation through overcoming challenges and an incredible journey that achieved an exclusive covenant with the Creator. But Yitzchak was born into that covenant. He didn't achieve it. And it's often very challenging to be the son and successor of a great man. To always live in the shadow of a towering figure and to feel a constant need to measure up. It's even challenging to hold on to past achievements, let alone augment them with new ones. Yitzchak overcame these challenges partially by being so different from his father. Unlike his older brother Yishmael, who was very much a copy of Avraham, and also exemplified the trait of Chesed, Yitzchak was more like Sarah, and like Sarah, he exemplified the attribute of Gevurah. The differences between Avraham as Chesed and Yitzchak as Gevurah can be seen in the fact that Avraham was a leader his entire life, while Yitzchak had for the most part been led. Avraham was constantly on offense. He took the initiative to create the world he wanted to see. But Yitzchak was always very much on defense. Chesed seeks to spread out and expand. Therefore, it's proactive and constantly advances. Gvurah, by contrast, seeks to maintain the status quo. It's conservative by nature and doesn't initiate anything new, but only reacts to what already exists. Yitzchak's entire personal mission seems to have been the preservation of his father's teachings and their transmission to the next generation. He gave these teachings boundaries for proper expression, but it didn't really add to them. It's also important to note that Yitzchak used this attribute of Gevurah to properly channel his father's message of Chesed. Following the death of his mother Sarah, Yitzchak traveled to Be'er Lechairoi to bring back Hagar to remarry Avraham. Yitzchak had put the issues between his mother and Hagar aside because he understood that his father shouldn't be unmarried. This is what likely caused Ishmael to finally recognize Yitzchak as the rightful successor to their father Avraham. It's also important to note that when a biblical figure is granted a new name, this generally signals some aspect of personal growth. Hagar, who is now Keturah, had stayed loyal to Avraham and to his teachings all the time that they were separated and she even advanced in her personal development. It's difficult to understand Yitzchak without understanding what had taken place at the Akedah, at the binding of Yitzchak, at the very end of Parshat Vayera. Avraham was commanded to bring Yitzchak as an offering on Har HaMoriah, Mount Moriah, the site of the future temple. This was obviously a major challenge for Avraham, but a challenge he overcame. The commandment to sacrifice Yitzchak 
called the entire question of his successor back into question and actually gave Avraham an opportunity to develop a better relationship with Yitzchak and to choose him as his heir without any divine coercion, especially since he had a three-day journey with Yitzchak, Yishmael, and Eliezer to really struggle with the question of who should take his place now that Hashem's selection had become less clear. And it also helped Avraham to finally fully appreciate the crucial value of Gevurah within the larger framework of Chesed. Avraham ended up binding Yitzchak, meaning that Chesed bound and subordinated Gevurah to its proper place, but he didn't slaughter him. And by stopping Avraham, the Creator was telling him that the binding by itself was sufficient, that there's no need to actually destroy Gevurah. Although Avraham most likely loved Yitzchak on a personal level, he might have entertained the thought that Gvurah needed to be destroyed for the sake of the greater good, so that Chesed alone would impact the world. But as he took the knife and stretched it towards his son, Avraham's hand was prevented from taking action. And he learned that Gvurah has an important role to play in the very advancement of Chesed. At the Akedah, both Avraham and Yitzchak advanced in their personal development. Yitzchak's willingness to be tied should be understood as Gvurah agreeing to limit itself. This was Yitzchak's growth, and Chesed, personified by Avraham, stopped short of killing a bound and helpless Gvurah. This was Avraham's advancement. The binding of Yitzchak should therefore be seen as a dialogue of mutual enlightenment that established a connection between Avraham's Chesed and Yitzchak's Gvurah that allowed for the future birth of Tiferet to balance both attributes. This will ultimately be expressed by Yitzchak's son and successor Yaakov. And immediately after the Akedah, Avraham was informed of the birth of Rivka, who would become Yitzchak's wife and mother to both Yaakov and Esav. For Yitzchak, the Akedah was extremely transformative. Our sages teach that Ishmael had told Yitzchak that because he underwent circumcision by choice at the age of 13, he and not Yitzchak, who had had his Brit Milah at eight days old, should succeed their father Avraham. Yitzchak responded by expressing a willingness to give up his life. Yitzchak understood that the way to counter Ishmael was to display even more self-sacrifice for the Hebrew mission. Our sages teach us that this led also to Yitzchak in addition to Avraham being tested at the Akedah. Avraham's test came as a result of the events in the previous chapter. Avraham had been living in Beersheba, in the desert within the boundaries of Avimelech's kingdom but far removed from the capital city, Grar. Avimelech saw Avraham's success, recognized him as a spiritual authority, and together with his military commander, paid him an official state visit as a sign of respect. Avimelech perceived Avraham as a strategic threat, and therefore sought to neutralize him by forging an alliance that would extend to their descendants. As a seasoned politician, Avimelech saw the situation more clearly than Avraham. Because he recognized Avraham's extraordinary potential and understood that his children might eventually rule the land, the king wanted guarantees regarding future generations. Avraham accepted Avimelech's offer to grant him the status of a religious leader within his political territory. The Philistines of that period were highly advanced in maritime trade and technological development. In fact, we later see in the Book of Shmuel that the Philistines already had iron weapons while the Hebrews were still using bronze. So it makes sense that Avraham would have seen the Philistine state as a powerful vehicle to spread his revolutionary teachings. 
What was most significant for Avraham about this alliance with the Philistines was that it was an opportunity to influence the world in the present. The aspect regarding his and Avimelech's progeny in the future was less significant because there wasn't yet a nation of Israel. Although he knew that his descendants would become a nation, he didn't yet feel it deeply enough to completely redirect his activities or pass up on the opportunity being presented by Avimelech. What was most immediately important to Avraham was to teach and to bring people close to Hashem. Avraham seemed to have preferred life under Avimelech as a recognized spiritual leader to his complicated political autonomy in Hebron. And therefore, Bereshit 21 verse 34 tells us that Avraham lived in the land of the Philistines for a long time. And as we already said, it was Sarah who actually forced the family back to Hebron. Now, because Avraham had no right to promise any part of the land of Israel to Avimelech, our sages view this alliance as a transgression and teach it to be one of the reasons behind the Akedah. But the relationship between these events is actually more complicated than mere sin and punishment. It would be better to understand their connection more as personal shortcomings and the necessary correction for those shortcomings. The Akedah ultimately forced Avraham to modify his approach so as to be inclusive of Gvura. The Akedat Yitzchak was actually even more transformative for Yitzchak than it was for Avraham. Bereshit chapter 22 verse 19 states that Avraham returned to his young men. Even though both Avraham and Yitzchak had physically returned to Eliezer and Ishmael after the Akedah, the verse uses singular language to only state that Avraham returned, because Yitzchak had attained a supreme level of self-sacrifice and actually remained at that level for the rest of his life. He was forever changed. Everything that he would go on to do from there, eating, drinking, farming, living with his wife, raising children, all these things would be done from the perspective of the Temple Mount. We see Yitzchak as an extremely vigorous person because real Kedusha requires active participation in the fullness of life. But Yitzchak never returned to being a regular human. In the metaphysical sense, Yitzchak was sacrificed. It's actually worth examining what happened to Yitzchak. Before the physical sacrifice could take place, a malach, an angel, stopped Avraham in Bereshit 22 verse 11 by calling out, Avraham, Avraham. At this point, Avraham had received a new double name, which means that he had risen to an even higher level at the Akedah. He had already grown from Avram to Avraham, and now he was essentially becoming Avraham, Avraham. We see four biblical figures granted double names in our scriptures. Avraham in this verse, Yaakov in Bereshit 46 verse 2, Moshe in Shmot 3 verse 4, and Shmuel in Shmuel Aleph chapter 3 verse 10. What these double names show is the unification of a person's nefesh and neshama. While these two words both tend to be translated into English as soul, they have different meanings in Hebrew. The nefesh could be understood as the lower, outer part of the soul, what a person is in the present, while the neshama is a person's inner essence, what he aspires to be, and the level he can reach. Calling a person by a double name suggests equivalence of that person's outer and inner soul, indicating that said person has fulfilled the mission he was created for. In other words, the double name symbolizes the realization of a person's potential. 
But Yitzchak actually reached beyond this level. His nefesh didn't become equal to his neshama, but was actually annulled following the events of the Akedah. In a certain sense, he became an ish olam a man of the world to come in his lifetime. Those addressed with a double name have completed their assigned tasks, but Yitzchak realized perfection.